Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm Andy Woods, your host. In this episode, I get to chat to the director of CLEEPS, Steve Jones. All science teachers and science technicians are well aware that CLEEPS has cars that sit on every science prep room shelf across the country. And unsurprisingly, CLEEPS membership runs at 98% of all schools and colleges. In this chat, I delve into what it's like to work in such an important organisation that supports science education across the UK. We delve into the key role CLEEPS has in schools with its focus on safe practicals, enabling school pupils to have access to safe and engaging experiments during their school career. Steve muses how things will change in the future and the way that CLEEPS will deliver their training to schools in the most effective way in a post-pandemic world. Steve and his team are keen to get back into the classroom and helping students and teachers when things become a little more normal. Thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I wanted to ask you first, maybe a silly question, but um, have I pronounced Cleeps correctly there? Absolutely. It's definitely Cleeps. People still call it Cleaps, um, and it was spelt differently in the past. But yeah, Cleeps is definitely right. We're on the right page. Well, Cleeps is right. Good. Um, could you give me yourself with a flavour of what kind of organisation Cleeps is, where you're based, how many people you employ, and maybe a, a brief history of the organisation so people get a bit of context? For the organisation. Okay, so CLEPS is a relatively small organisation. It's got about 20 members of staff. Um, it's based on the campus of Brunel University. Um, it's been there since 1963, so it's a, a very long-standing organisation. Um, it's been in its current building for about the last 12, 12 years, um, but has always been here on, on Brunel campus. Uh, what sort of a un- organisation is it? Um, I think it's a fun organisation to work for, believe it or not, and hopefully that will come through this afternoon's conversation. And what makes what makes you think it's uh, a kind of got a fun atmosphere in your in your organisation? What is it that really makes you uh, kind of pleased to be there uh, Monday to Friday? I think it's the opportunity really to get stuck into practical science. That's primarily what it's about. Um, it definitely has a, a reputation for being a health and safety organisation, and I think a, a lot of people out there, I have to say, including myself, when I first thought about this as a role I might take on I've got a view that it you know consists of lots of people leafing through dusty health and safety tomes uh, the reality is that couldn't really be further from the from the truth uh, the staff at Cleves get the unique opportunity to to engage and try out practical activities on a daily basis that's what we're here for so I guess you've employed quite a few ex-teachers or are they kind of academic scientists what kind of backgrounds do they come from uh, before joining I think one of the most striking things people are surprised by is that Cleeps doesn't actually employ any safety officers at all. So it may be thought of as a safety organisation, but it has no safety officers. So all Cleeps staff are either teachers or technicians who previously worked in schools. And that keeps us grounded. Um, the rationale behind that is, 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 is that grounding. It's, it's the sense that um, if there's a piece of health and safety legislation that you don't understand, you can read that up and learn it. But if you haven't got an insight to what 9R3 are like period six on a Friday afternoon, it's going to be very difficult for you to write any useful guidance about how to do a practical activity with them. So I employ people who already know about the school context and then they learn the health and safety background as they need it. As, as, they, as they go along, so to speak. So they've had real, real kind of experience in, in the school environment. I mean, earlier on in your career, um, were you involved in science education or any kind of lecturing or teaching, teaching uh, earlier on? So a very, very long time ago, I started off as a physics teacher. Uh, and then I was a, um, a head of physics. 
and then I, eventually I was a head of science. And then I was extremely fortunate at the point at which I'd been doing the head of science for about six or seven years, um, is that the uh, national strategies started, which many people can't remember now, but at the time it was quite a big thing. And that created an opportunity for, for there to be roles in the local authority acting as a sort of advisor. So I migrated into, into the local authority as a, a consultant initially, but then ultimately as an advisor working in science, trying to improve the, the teaching of science, particularly in key stage three. Um, and then again, very fortuitously, as that drew to a close after about nine years, um, the opportunity arose to uh, to transfer to here uh, to work for Cleves. Oh, brilliant. So a brilliant opportunity and uh, kind of came along at the right time. So um, how is uh, Cleves funded? Is it, um, you know, is it a non-for-profit? Is it, is it run by government? Uh, where does your funding come from uh, to, to get the organisation uh, keep, or keep it going? Sorry. I think one of the things people, again, most surprised about is that Cleves doesn't get any money from central government. It's not funded by DFE. It's not funded by government. All of the funding for Cleves comes in a subscription from employers in education. Now, mostly it still comes in through local authorities. Um, and the name that we spoke about at the beginning is, is really in the past was an acronym. It actually stands for the Consortium of Local Educational Authorities for the Provision of Science Services. And that's what it is. It's a consortium. So out of the 182 local authorities in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, at the moment, 174 of them belong to the consortium. And they pay a subscription on behalf of the employees in their schools, which gives those employees, those teachers and technicians access to our advice. So it's all funded independent of government. And that's one of the great things about working here is that, is that you know, we are independent of the uh, political direction that happened to be running in at that time. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's still here after 57 years. Well, good. I was thinking about the, like you talk about political direction, and obviously one of the big changes we've had over the last uh, 10 to 15 years is um, more academies in the system and less local authorities. How does that affect uh, your funding, particularly? Is that changed, or does uh, schools and academy chains sign up to you as a as a matter of course? Well, this is interesting because I arrived here just as academisation was gathering speed, and I have to say, in the back of my mind, I might thought I might have been the shortest lived director of Cleeps ever because I imagined that that might cause its demise. Um, actually, that's not turned out to be the case at all. At the moment, about ninety eight percent of schools in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland belong to Cleeps one way or another. So sometimes academies will join through the local authority they used to be part of. Sometimes they're multi-academy trust will join centrally and sometimes they just belong direct membership to Cleves. It's had a big impact on the on the mechanics of collecting the income and I have a sort of ballpark figure that I usually quote to folks where I say when I started here 75% of our income came from 184 invoices. If you looked for 75% of our income now you would have well over three and a half thousand invoices to collect the same amount of money. Because the education system in England, particularly, um, has fragmented in that in that ten year period, um, the need for the advice that we offer hasn't gone away. Um, and I think unless somebody repealed the 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act, it probably isn't going to go away because people need advice um, about how to interpret legislation in a sensible way in schools. And in terms of your organisation, thinking about safety and uh, safety within within schools, um, I guess you've got equal responsibility in terms of advice for both 
protecting children and protecting uh, the teachers themselves from themselves, if you see what I mean, in terms of practicals. Um, how do you kind of divide that um, that work, if you like? How do you think about that when you're giving advice about practicals? I think what we what we like to do is I like to think when people say who do you work for, I like to think that we actually work for the children because our primary purpose is is to enable people to do good, interesting, effective activities with children safely. Um, and so we're an enabler and getting people to understand that is quite difficult. I mean, health and safety is often seen as a barrier to doing things. Uh, I really firmly believe that actually it should be viewed as enabler and, and Cleep's job is to help teachers and technicians see that actually managing safety is not a, an onerous task um, and can be done. It isn't as the um, HSE is fond of saying rocket science. It's not rocket science. can be done. And if you, you get it right, it actually enables you to do lots of exciting stuff and kids get an access to do it. The audience for what we write is clearly teachers and technicians. Um, and, and, but those teachers and technicians are then the conduit to the, to the children. Thank you. And in terms of um, kind of the, the advice and the geographical spread, you don't just cover England, do you? No, we also deal with Wales and Northern Ireland. And then there is a sister organisation called CERC that covers Scotland. And we work very closely with the Scottish um, CERC organisation to make sure that the guidance lines up. Because obviously the, the regulation, the health and safety regulations are the same uh, north and south of the border. The school context is a bit different, but the regulations are identical. And can you give us a flavour of um, uh, what your uh, uh, maybe ex-teacher employees are doing on a day-to-day basis in Cleops? What kind of activities are they doing during the week? What would be a typical day for a, a person working at Cleops? So if you were a Cleops advisor, what would you do in a day? Well, uh, you'd spend quite a lot of time answering helplines. I think one of the USPs for Cleops is, is the fact that it runs a telephone and email helpline. And so during the course of a day, you know, we will get nigh on a hundred telephone calls from teachers and technicians in schools with very specific questions about how to get things to work and whether things are or are not safe so you'd spend a bit of time doing that you'd spend a bit of time answering helplines that have been sent in by email uh, and then you'd get the opportunity to go and spend some time in the lab trying out an activity and you might be writing a piece of guidance so having tried it out you'd be then writing that into the form of a bit of guidance and be editing a piece of guidance perhaps that's written by somebody else uh, i mean what you'll write the the help the helplines help are an important feature because they drive to a degree what we then write guidance about so we don't just sit here and think well, what would be a nice thing today to write some guidance about and then just have free reign we're usually responding to things where we're getting a lot of helpline queries uh, because people are clearly finding it difficult to do things um, and that uh, uh, and that would be a feature of the day so answering the phone talking to people talking to teachers and then possibly under normal circumstances maybe once a week once a fortnight you'd be out on the road in the car with a car full of equipment going to a school somewhere to run a hands-on practical course for teachers or technicians okay so going out and um, as i say uh, visiting schools which must be um, nice to kind of get out there and see how your work is applied in the in the in the, in the real world i suppose yes of, of those busy schools i was going to ask you about uh, a key thing um that i always found quite difficult to explain to students when I, when I was a teacher and other teachers, I guess, is that this this idea of the, di- the difference between hazards and risks in science experiments. Um, I was just wondering if there is there a way you like to kind of explain the difference to, uh, you know, teachers you're training uh, and then onto the pupils that, that they're teaching. Uh, what are your thoughts on hazards versus risks and how we should explain that? This is really very important 
and it, it, the, the distinction between hazard and risk really lies at the at the centre of how how safety is managed in the UK, not just in schools. Um, it's difficult because the words hazard and risk get used in everyday life as if they meant the same thing. But it is actually quite useful if you can distinguish between the two. So what we tend to say is, is a hazard is essentially something you're stuck with. It is a property, a fundamental property of the chemical or the um, piece of equipment. So, you know, and you can't change it. You can't say, actually, I don't really want this um, corrosive sulfuric acid. I'd rather have some non-corrosive sulfuric acid, please. Uh, or I really don't like this dangerous 230 volts electricity. I'd, I'd rather have some much safer uh, 230 volts electricity, please. You're, you're stuck with the hazard. Um, but the basis of, of, of safety management in the framework in the UK and across large parts of the world is to say, well, actually, you know, the hazard isn't really what matters. What matters in the end um, is the risk. And the risk is the chances that that hazard is actually going to result in harm to somebody. Now, that strategy, as I always refer to, it's permissive, because what that essentially says is that, is that you could do anything provided you can put measures in place to control the risk now, it isn't universally the case this. Other parts of the world do do this differently. And, and in particular, it's quite different in America. So in the States, their, their safety legislation often operates on the basis of, of hazards. Um, if there's something which has um, resulted in injury or an incident, their response would be to remove the hazard. So there are a number of states in America, for example, where it is actually... Uh, forbidden to use a naked flame anywhere in a school. And this is a response to some very nasty, you know, life-changing incidents, one or two, um, where uh, flammable liquids ended up being ignited. And in order to stop that from happening again, well, you just completely remove the source of ignition. Now, that clearly will stop that incident from ever happening again. But in the process, you've also stopped a very large number of what are intrinsically quite safe and very valuable experiences because you can't have any naked flame. And I think that characterises quite clearly the difference between the way that the UK and other parts of the world's legislation works and, and say the way it works in the States. It's the reason why there'll never be a Cleach USA because we just can't, you can't write guidance in the, in the context of something that just bans hazards. It doesn't work. I mean, uh, thinking about the time that we're recording this, so this is uh, December 2020 and we're imminently about to um, uh, move away from the EU. Uh, will that have an effect on Cleach particularly or has it have ever had an effect in terms of EU guidelines or is it is it kind of business as usual, do you think, in January 2021? I think the, the headline here is, is we're not expecting any, an immediate or significant impact. I mean, it has to be said that the, um, the hazard classification system operating with chemicals is a global system. So for the past 10 years or so, we've been operating um, under the CLP interpretation of that, which is the thing agreed across Europe. Now, if the UK wishes to continue to trade with Europe in some shape or form, it will almost inevitably have to classify, organise, manage the risks associated with its chemicals under that system. Otherwise, nobody from Europe will be able to buy our stuff. Um, so we're not anticipating a major change. We do get questions from folks about whether there'll be impact, for example, on the supply of chemicals. 
So when Brexit occurred originally, there was a big, you know, people would go, oh my goodness, we're not going to buy this anymore. Um, I think at the moment we're not anticipating famous last words that that's going to be a big problem immediately. Um, over time, it, it will make uh, some transactions for some materials marginally more bureaucratic, I suspect. But that's obviously tied up with what type of deal is finally done. In terms of Cleeps, Cleeps has members in Europe, uh, but we're not really anticipating a massive divergence between the sensible arrangements here and the sensible arrangements in Europe. Okay. Um, and thinking about Cleeps in terms of its, its training role, I mean, um, how kind of embedded are you in terms of being involved in initial teacher training in the UK, you know, England, Scotland, Wales. Um, are you involved in particular kind of university training courses? What is your degree of involvement in a kind of the beginning of a teacher's journey, if you like, in schools? Well, at the moment, about 77 teacher training organisations are directly members of us. Obviously, given 98% of the schools belong to us, anybody who's in a school-based scheme, the school they're in is almost certainly going to be a, a member of CLEEPS. We've recently put together a pack of materials with some funding from the Gatsby Foundation, uh, specifically designed to enable uh, trainers, uh, tutors, um, on uh, undergraduate and postgrad uh, teacher training uh, provision to talk with students, to work with trainees about how to manage risk sensibly in their practical lessons. It's a niche subject and one of the things we've learned in the process of drawing this material together is that the folks involved in running those um, courses are really time pressured. So there are a lot of things to get into that one year or two year experience. Um, and obviously the, the management of safety is competing for that space. So the point of our materials is to try to make that a sensible part of the concentrated effort on practical work, which is part of the science teacher training process. And have you noticed during the time you've been at uh, CLEEPS any kind of change in terms of the number of people um, signing up your training courses? Is it generally um, a steady flow over the years or does it peak and trough? And are there any reasons behind uh, why those peaks and troughs happen, do you think? I think the most striking thing about the people who sign up for the teachers, or our training rather, is that they're mostly technicians. So the ability to access, you know, face-to-face -face courses um, about two-thirds of the people who come on CLEEPS training are technicians, and partly because they're the ones in the front line of focusing on some of the technical issues, but partly because it's obviously more straightforward for them to come out of school to come on a course during school time because that doesn't produce a cover implication. And I think in, in the 10 years that I've been at CLEEPS, I think it's become harder for teachers to access training where that training takes them out of the classroom. It's more and more difficult to be released from teaching to go and to do training. And uh, obviously the time we're recording this is uh, there's hope and the rise with the vaccine, et cetera, for the COVID-19 uh, issues we've had this year. Um, how have you found and how have you adapted um, CLEEPS in terms of its training? Are, are there any things you think um, you'll keep on uh, kind of 2021 and beyond uh, due to what you've learned uh, from the disruption this year? Anything you'd like to keep? I think the first thing, obviously, is that we stopped doing face-to-face -face training back in March. Um, we plan to start again with some quite strict COVID-safe protocols, smaller audiences, no shared kit, et cetera, et cetera, 
um, in November, and then that got knocked on the head by lockdown too. So at the moment, we've we've run virtually no face to face training for in excess of six months. Um, in that time, obviously, the, the, the you know the growth of the the uh, online platform as the answer to everything has occurred, and Cleeps historically really has focused on doing face-to-face courses, close supervision, trying out practical work, having the kit with you, doing the activity live. And so much of that doesn't lend itself to being transferred into into an online platform of some description. Having said that, we have developed um, a kind of part A, part B model for some pieces of training where you gather together the more theoretical aspects and you deal with those through a Zoom or a Teams meeting style format with question and answers and tasks and short video clips. And you can show and demonstrate key pieces of practice um, and you can respond to people's questions about what the law requires and what it would look like. And, you know, if I've done it like this, is that going to be adequate? Um, and those have proved very popular. So the, the big selling feature of that format is it's enabled um, large numbers of people to access some training who previously would not have been able to come on one of our face-to-face courses. What we're left with out of that, of course, is that that all the actual hands-on, close supervision type experiences um, are left to a part B. And and we're promising part B now when the world returns to normal. Um, And and I think, to be fair, if people were able to engage with part A and part B, at the end of that experience, they would probably have had a fuller, more detailed, more, more rich experience than perhaps they would have had historically on a one-day face-to-face course. My worry, if I'm honest, is that people may not be able to access that face-to-face training at all because there is a, 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 a slightly nervous aspect to me where I worry that you know if schools perceive that you can have all your training online, the the issue of getting out of school to go on a face-to-face course might be even more difficult post-pandemic than it was before. Um, I think the appetite for, for face-to-face training is still there. We still get a continuous flood of people trying to find out when we'll be doing it, can they book it now? And, and at the moment we're saying, well, look, to be honest, if you book it now, we'll probably have to cancel it because I don't know what the situation is going to be like in February. Um, and, you know, please keep following us on this e-alert system. And as soon as we can seriously offer you this, uh, get in touch and we'll do it. Whether the audiences will come back for that, we'll have to wait and see. I suspect the world of, of, of CPD for, for teachers and technicians will be different afterwards and some features of what we've developed um, will persist. And, and if that means that we have the right medium for the right bits of training, that will be a good thing. And it might even strengthen the argument for the face-to-face course because we could legitimately say, well, look, you know, all the other aspects are being done online, but I'm very sorry, you know, if you want to learn how to, to, to put quick fit together safely and run this organic practical you absolutely can't do that without somebody with you closely supervising what you're doing. Definitely. I think um, it sounds like uh, that kind of hybrid or blended learning, a, a bit, some online and some practical might be kind of a, a nice compromise uh, from, you know, what, you, what you've learned during this year. I guess uh, in terms of, um, obviously, it's difficult for teachers to come to come out and obviously technicians um, are, obviously, as you say, a bit cheaper for schools to, re- to release and it's important they, they get trained because uh, during my time, as a teacher, <clears throat> there was a big 
um, and always has been since I, I was teaching science, you know, recruitment for science teachers and retention. Also, technicians as well. Um, I taught in the south of England, and it was very difficult sometimes to get technicians to to your school, especially in the smaller schools I taught in. Um, is there anything? Um, I guess professional development through Clips is going to help people, uh, uh, you know, feel uh, that they're trained well for their job and they've got um, they've embedded uh, those skills in the job. Is there anything else you think uh, should be done to kind of keep you know that momentum going with science teacher recruitment and retention and technician recruitment and retention? I think the teacher and the technician stories in that are quite quite different in a way. The, 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 it, prior to the pandemic, the issue that was emerging around teachers is retention. Teachers were being recruited, but they, they weren't staying. They, large proportions of them were leaving within the first three years. And, and that must say something about whether the job that they're being asked to do is sustainable. And until you looked carefully at what that job was actually like on a day-to-day basis, you weren't going to make any difference to that retention rate. Now, um, I suspect that we know that recruitment of teaching has improved drastically as a result of the economic downturn, as a result of the pandemic. This always happens. In the event, you know, I've been on record at times in my career of going teacher recruitment crisis. What we need now is a good, sound economic downturn because that will sort that problem out. And I think there is a, a linkage between. Uh, you know, economic progress or lack of it and the recruitment of teachers, um, mainly, I guess, because it's perceived as a safe job. Unfortunately, it's not much good as a safe job. It is not sustainable. If you can't actually do it year in, year out, then, then people won't stay, which I think is tragic because potentially I still think it's the best job there is. It seems very sad to me sometimes that we appear to have taken what could be the best job ever into something which actually people just can't keep doing not not survivable technicians is a different story um technicians the the issue with school technicians and probably technicians much more widely is that the role itself is not perceived as being of value and i think there is a real failure to recognize just how important technical careers are full stop and as a, a you know a bit of that story how important technical support is in schools and one of the things I found most interesting is that, you know, if the technician can come on the course and learn how to do something, then the technician could, in theory, help the teacher understand how to do that thing. Now, if you suggest that in an average audience of school senior leaderships, they're absolutely gobsmacked. The technician, who's probably, you know, one of the lowliest paid people in my entire science department, is going to be able to train my teachers how to do things. Yes. He's not going to train them how to be teachers. And I think that's very important. Sometimes technicians get a bit carried away and think, oh, yes, I can I can teach them how to teach. Teaching itself is a skill set which is distinct from can you get the burette up the right way? And, and there is a real opportunity for, for technicians to make a major contribution to developing the technical skills of the teaching force. But that isn't seen as something that they might be engaged in. So the recruitment of technicians and the shortages of technicians largely reflects the fact that they are not valued in the system which is a tragedy because they're absolutely indispensable yeah definitely and as a teacher i would say that that, um, i worked in a variety of different schools and um, how much difference uh, a technician makes to a science teacher in terms of um, their their support 
in that extra layer of complexity that science teachers have in terms of managing, um, ordering uh, uh, the, the practicals, um, it's really helpful. And I think that is perhaps something they need to think think about maybe in, in that kind of support of the science teachers. It's really important that the technicians are engaged and really helpful to science teachers. It makes a big, big difference. Uh, I think most, most science teachers recognise that and certainly most new science teachers recognise that the technician is a lifesaver. The, the, the thing is that the teachers are not the ones making the decisions about who to employ. And I mean, even prior to the pandemic, one of the most disturbing trends was a reduction in the numbers of technicians employed by schools um, and a reduction in the number of hours that they were working. The, you know, the rise of a term time only contract for technicians, it's difficult to see that as anything other than as a cost saving measure. Um, and uh, that, that the impact of that is very significant because lots of tasks, lots of organising, sorting, you know, clearing, getting on top of things took place during the holidays when there were no lessons to prepare kit for. And if you arrange it so that your technician works out, walks out at half past four on Friday at the end of a term and doesn't come back until 9.30 on Monday morning at the beginning of the next term, then they never catch up. Um, and that, that, you know, that is a, a, a hidden but very significant impact uh, of changing technicians working to term time only. Definitely. And I know from uh, also from my experience that um, some technicians in my school always shut down a week early, so to speak. You couldn't get a practical in the last week. You couldn't get a practical in the first week term uh, for that for that very reason. Um, you know, you're cutting off a third of that term uh, without any practical science, which is, is a great pity. And uh, I guess it's something that uh, not some schools will, some schools won't, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, something, something to definitely obviously consider in terms of uh, kind of making that technician role uh, a really valued job, as you say. I was thinking about changing tax slightly, but um, thinking about kind of the way that obviously technology is impacting in the pandemic, but also thinking about uh, science experiments and simulations and kind of virtual reality and all these new things are possibly on the horizon and where that sits with um, kind of practical hands-on science and where you think that could go and are there any what are the pros and cons of these virtual experiments versus practical experiments um, uh, any thoughts on that going forward and over the next 10 years I mean I think I think the the role played by well-constructed simulations you, you, you can't deny there isn't one I think the most important thing is to realize that they don't teach the same things so students doing uh, simulations it would be wrong to say they can't learn anything but they will learn different things than if they actually carried out the practical activity with equipment and I feel quite strongly that that there is a real opportunity in practical subjects in schools, particularly from my own background in science, to get students to actually engage with real objects, manipulate real objects in real time, to develop the skills associated with doing that. Um, a lot of um, people's lives these days are lived inside a, a virtual environment. Um, and. Uh, that worries me slightly. Now, whether that just makes me an old person, I'm not entirely certain, but I think there is a balance to be struck. So it'd be wrong to say that there isn't a role to be played by simulations, but it would be equally wrong to suggest that a simulation is a replacement for a hands-on practical activity. Um, and, and blend is the word you used earlier. You know, in this area, there's also an opportunity for a blend, isn't there? 
Definitely. I was thinking about going back to your, your the videos you produce. I was wondering, out of interest, being an ex-science teacher myself, uh, what, what do you get the most uh, inquiries about? Is there a particular like top five experiments that people are concerned about? In my mind, I think it's going to be radioactivity, but is there is there any kind of... <laughs> we, do get, we do get a lot of inquiries about radioactivity out of all proportion to the amount of actual activities taking place in radioactivity. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't identify them. The number one biggest thing that we get helpline inquiries about is actually nothing to do with the practical. It's to do with ventilation. If you fixed the ventilation in school chemical stores and prep rooms and labs, I would think, you know, 10% of our helplines would disappear overnight. I always say, you know, if I was paid a fiver extra for each ventilation inquiry, I'd be retired by now. Um, So that's that's quite odd. Um, it's not really possible to identify an activity or a sort of range. We, we get questions about all sorts of activities all across the spectrum of things. Um, and, and they're different every day. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about working here. You just don't know what the next phone call is going to be about because you've got that whole gamut of activities that are going on in schools. And it could be a question about any one of them. So I, it's very hard to identify specific things. Uh, thank you. I was going to ask you as well, a bit of a kind of like an advert for Cleeps in a sense, is um, in, in terms of uh, some perceptions of, of Cleeps of being obviously health and safety focused, what um, do you provide in terms of when you think about your, your website and what you offer teachers? Is, is there something that you think that a lot of teachers don't know about that you could give them or provide them that maybe is underused at the moment, but you, you are creating these, these good resources, but they're being underutilised at the moment? What would you like to kind of bring out to I mean, I think in terms of direction of travel, one of the things we've found is that the video clips that we've produced, which are very low budget, I mean, you know, one, one slightly wobbly camera angle, but they do show how to actually do very tricky aspects of particular practicals, and they've become a sort of gateway experience for lots of teachers. So lots of teachers who are time poor um, come into our resources through looking at a video and going, oh, actually, I think I could probably do that activity. And then that's increasingly being backed up by something which we've called a practical procedure, which is a sort of in-depth description of how to do something so that it's so that it's safe, obviously, but also so that it actually works. Because I think one of the most frustrating things on the helpline is, is teachers and technicians ringing in and saying, well, look, you know, I've been trying all morning to get this to work and I can't get it to work. And then they describe what it is that they've been trying to do. And you can say, well, that was never going to work. And uh, I mean, the, the difficult thing is you say, so where did you get that from? And sadly, quite a lot of the time that comes out of a published scheme. So, you know, they haven't dreamt it up. They haven't seen it on YouTube. It's just been lifted straight out of a scheme. Well, you know, there's just enough information so that you can spend all morning trying to get it to work, but not enough. So our PPs are supposed to be oven-ready activities. You follow the instructions, it will work, guaranteed. How can I guarantee that? Because we've tried it. I mean, one of the earlier points about Cleeps itself is it, is it actually has a lab on site. So, you know, it, 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 it doesn't publish things. It hasn't tried. So if somebody rings in and says it doesn't work, we've never heard of it, we'll go, well, that's interesting. You give me a couple of hours and I'll go and see if I can replicate what you're telling me and we'll find out why it's not working. But it does offer us the opportunity to write things where with certainty we can say, yeah, you know, this is going to work. Even biology, which is sometimes slightly more challenging. 
I was going to say that's good. That is good to know because I never, myself, when I was a teacher, I never thought of, of phoning Cleeps up to, to ask them anything other health and safety. Not not an, that experiment that didn't work. So it's good to know that um, that people can get in contact and are having issues with various uh, experiments that they can get a bit of advice and that's really important for science teachers when they know somewhere there at the end of the line who can uh, give it a go has got the time to maybe look at it and come back to them and, and give them advice on that that is invaluable for uh, teachers especially young teachers or, or any teachers that's, bu- that's busy and to know that um, Cleeps is there to, to support them and that's really important and a, a kind of key part of your service I guess. I should think about 50% of the content related questions that come by the email or the phone do relate to this won't work um, rather than you know is this safe or am I allowed to do this half the queries are well look I'd, I'd like to do this but it doesn't work um, and and that's you know obviously we, we can try it and get it to work um, and, and if in the end it really doesn't work well we can say look it doesn't work stop trying so that you're not wasting a lot of time on something which in the end isn't going to do it. One of the most interesting things about helplines is that the, the advisor will often ask the person on the phone why they're trying to do something. And that usually is people are often a bit taken aback by that. Well, hang on a minute. Why do, why do you need to know that? Well, I need to know that because if I understand what you're trying to get the kids to learn by doing this, first of all, I can understand whether what you're doing is the only way to do it because it might well be that rather than spending a lot more time trying to get this to work you'd actually be better off trying this instead and so a lot of the time we would direct someone actually look you know you could keep doing that but it may never really work why don't you try this instead now i can't do that if i don't if i'm not inside the head of the teacher if i don't understand and that creates a flaw because sometimes a teacher will tell the technician to phone up Yes, a technician comes on the phone going, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so has just asked me to ring and ask you, blah. And, and you're going, OK, so so why do they want to do blah? And, of course, the technician doesn't know. So worst case scenario, the technician will cover the handset of the telephone and shout across the prep room to the teacher, Oi, why do you want to try and do this? And I'm sitting there thinking, for goodness sake, put them on. Don't, don't act as an intermediary get them on the phone because they can tell me why they want to do it and then i'll understand why it matters and uh, and, and i might be able to suggest something quicker easier better that will do the same job um, sometimes the only reason for doing it is because it's fun now <laughs> i have a bit of an issue. <laughs> there's a bit of an issue with because it's fun i mean i always used when i taught i always used to say to my department to say look Look, fun, you know, I would never have taught any subject other than science because I do think doing the practical work is the most engaging thing you can do. And it has to be fun, but it has to be fun plus. Because if there's no plus, it doesn't really belong in a school. Education is far too expensive to just be entertainment. So if you can't articulate what they're going to learn by doing this, well, then probably you shouldn't be doing it. And if it's risky, you definitely shouldn't be doing it because what you're doing is you're balancing the risk that you're going to take because there will be a risk, no matter how well you manage it, there's still a risk versus what the benefit, what the learning is going to be. If there's no learning, there's no justification for taking the risk. And that sometimes produces a tricky conversation because if you can't tell me what the value in this is, I'm unlikely to spend much time thinking about how you can make it work. Yes, I mean, I mean, uh, kind of children uh, at school often fall into that trap, often ask you, are we doing a practical, are we doing a practical? <laughs> are we getting the Bunsen's out, sir? It won't be science. Yes, I know, and I often ask them a cheeky question, say, so what did you learn from your last practical? 
which usually stumped them sometimes just to yes. remind them. I tell, I tell teachers on courses that if they if they want an illuminating experience, one of the best things they can do is arrange with the colleague that when they're teaching, they can sneak into the back of a practical lesson and ask the groups and pairs of children two questions. What are you doing? And that usually is fine. The kids can usually tell you what they're doing. We're, we're pouring that in there and then we're boiling this and then we're filtering it through there and then we're going to put it on the windowsill. That's fine. But the really interesting question is, why are you doing it? And if you ask that of groups of children, you will get the most amazing sets of answers about why they do it. Because Miss told us, because we need it for our GCSE or an absolutely dumbfounded expression. Oh, I don't really know, really, because we just because we just are. And, and it's sometimes unnerving because as the teacher, you'll be thinking, well, I thought I explained why we were, but maybe you didn't. It's great fun. I, I enjoy that a lot. Always ask the, the teacher if you're sneaking in the back before you do it because it annoys people if you just appear and start asking questions. Difficult questions, yeah. Um, our time's coming to an end almost now, but I did want to ask you, um, I say the context of this recording, uh, the, va- the vaccines are starting to be rolled out and this this, this podcast might uh, come out um, uh, mid-2021, we'll have to decide when it comes out, but um, uh, what, uh, do you, what are you looking forward to um, for your organisation One when restrictions are, I hope, eventually uh, um, lifted and things go back to normal? Was there anything that you kind of missed uh, specifically in your kind of job in in, in Cleeps that you think well, God, oh, I'm glad that's going to restart again because we can do that. What was the main thing for you? That- I think it's the it's got to be the training. I mean, you know, I think that for all of the folks who work here, getting out, meeting teachers, running activities in a school, you know, these are all really important parts of what we do, and we haven't been able to do those, and they are intrinsically enjoyable. We, we like, you know, okay, you might have to drive to Newcastle to do it, but when you get there, it's a really worthwhile experience, and we haven't really had any of that, and it's very important to the organisation because it's it's that connection to the audience. So, okay, we talk to people on the phone, we answer their email queries, but it's not quite the same as turning up in a school with a bunch of 20-plus teachers, looking at some activities, talking about practicals, talking about safety, and that gives us a really grounded insight into what the challenges are. And I think if you ask anybody who worked here, we, we've missed that. Um, you know, online training has provided a outlet, but it isn't the same. It doesn't provide the feedback loop that the real stuff does. And we, we want to be out there doing this again. So roll on vaccine and... Uh, you know, roll on face-to-face training. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully that will, that will kick off again um, in, in in due time. And um, I've really enjoyed our chat this afternoon, Steve. Been great. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and uh, hope to catch up again soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to my conversation with the director of CLEEP, Steve Jones. I hope you learnt a lot. I certainly got a deeper understanding into the organisation and the essential role it plays in science education. Is there someone you think we should be interviewing on the podcast? Please get in touch. Send your thoughts to andrew.woods at pearson.com and we'll see what we can do.